coming out of losing a parent, coming out of PTSD, coming out of shutting down a business, coming out of feeling like I failed in a lot of ways. For me, the, the exercise of engaging in entrepreneurship again is like, it's like discovering running or like a whole body workout for the first time where it's just like, oh, wow. Like I, like I, I woke up, you know, and, and I think challenges me in every way in how I engage socially and how I engage as a leader in my beliefs about money or my own skills or my deserving or doubts. And I, I think, I think for me is, is just a way of, of being the most human that I can possibly be. And, and to me, that is, that is, that's, that's hope that it's worth being the most human that we can be. Right. You're listening to Under the Current, a podcast that tells the real stories behind the life and work of creative people who come at things in unconventional ways. In each episode, we go below the surface to better understand the highs, lows, and messy middles that are part of the journey. My name's Howard Gray, and I'm your host. It used to be that work was a singular choice, a job maybe a career, perhaps even an entrepreneur. But today, these paths are blending. You may be working with clients, building a business of your own, incubating a new project, or doing all three simultaneously. Meanwhile, on a parallel set of rails, doing good has evolved from solely being the domain of philanthropists into nonprofits and corporate social responsibility, through to sustainability, B corporations, and social enterprises. These shifts offer alchemy and optionality, but also tension. How do we blend and combine the possibilities so we can move things forward? How do we find the places where we feel we belong? And what happens when we bring together people who don't belong? These are all questions that inform the work of Shanley Knox. She's a brand strategist based in New York, as well as a social entrepreneur working in East Africa. And she's currently sculpting two new ventures that synthesize systems change, strategy, and social entrepreneurship. In this conversation, we get into dismantling a business on the cusp of success, a dangerous bias around meaningful work, the audacious hope of building something new, and why a set of traffic lights in downtown Manhattan changed just about everything. It's time to go under the current with Shanley Knox. So Shanley, I think we have to start with an admission is that whenever we speak, we seem to have either one or both of us seems to be eating or have just finished eating. And I guess that leads into a good start point is what have I interrupted you doing today? And was it food related? It was food related. I was, I was trying to eat a bowl of sweet potato gnocchi before you started our, our Zoom call. And I, it is the first time actually that I have ever, I think, had a conversation with you where I completely finished my meal beforehand. Very proud. We're making progress. <laughs> so other, other than interrupting you eating sweet potato gnocchi, can, can you share a bit else about what's been going on today, this week? What's, what's, on, your, what's on your plate right now, pardon the pun? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I'm in the midst of a, of a home renovation. So that's been going on this week. 
I bought a house up in the like an 1820s house in the Hudson Valley mid pandemic and moved up here with my husband and, and toddler. So I've been negotiating with our floors being done. I'm finally back in my, my office space. Yeah, working on some freelance contracts and also working on working on a startup among some other things. So it's kind of been a little bit of, of everything in the midst of, of motherhood and, and home renovation. <laughs> so for those that maybe aren't familiar with the work you do, can you maybe just briefly kind of introduce yourself and what? what you do and the things you you find yourself kind of gravitating towards when it comes to projects yeah yeah so I have I have kind of a a funny hybrid of things that I do I've worked in brand and marketing strategy for quite some time now and fell in love with systems change and systems research a couple years ago so I've been starting to move much more in that direction, which very much dovetails with, with kind of my alter ego as a, as a social entrepreneur in East Africa, where I've, I've lived most of my life as an adult. I've spent at least kind of half of my time there and then, and then half in New York city. So we're going to dig into this quite a bit more as we go, but you mentioned social entrepreneurship and building business in Africa. Can, can we go back in time two and a bit years ago? And maybe can you explain a little bit about that, the kind of tipping point or a moment two and a half years ago and what, what happened and how that sort of brought you up to now? Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was newly pregnant and very much in a transition period. My husband and I were got, got, went to city hall in Canada where he was living. And then I flew back to New York city and we were kind of, uh, long distance dating as married, you know, as you do and uh, found out I was pregnant and was in the midst of pitching for investment and having really amazing, promising conversations about a manufacturing startup that I was building in Uganda at the time. I have a very distinct moment. I remember actually of, of crossing Houston street and realizing that the person I was showing up as was not the person I wanted my son to know, particularly as it came to my business partnership and my relationship and with, with my work and had this kind of knowing that surfaced that I was, there were things I was afraid to say. There was things I was afraid to do. There was space I was afraid to take up. And particularly as a woman, pregnant with at least, you know, at, at birth, I was gender would be a, a male. That's not, that's not what I wanted to, to portray to my son. That's, that isn't what I wanted my, my son to know. And that kind of started, I think to the, to the shock and dismay of a lot of people around me and to just kind of the head nod of a lot of people that knew me better. I, I kind of started the, the process of dismantling the work I had been doing for the past five years. And, and in a lot of ways, just kind of laying it bare and starting over. How long did it take from that moment crossing Houston Street in downtown New York? Even you mentioning that makes me a bit wistful because I moved from the East Village to Brooklyn six months ago and I kind of missed that crazy, noisy thoroughfare yeah. running through the, the downtown. How long did it take from that kind of moment crossing the street to starting doing that work of dismantling? Was it like an instant, I know I have to change this or did it sit with you for a while? Yeah, it was pretty instant. We were, we were 
in fundraising conversations. So we were about to take, we were about to, we were pitching for 1.2 million. We were having extremely promising conversations. We were planning on moving ahead and in the process of evaluation and, and opening our financials. And, and I think it was a matter of days in which I said, I'm done. Talk about the first time after that, that you then returned to Africa. I mean, like when, you know, this was in New York City yeah. two and a half years ago. Can you talk about maybe, maybe fill in the gap in between, but like then you, you did eventually return. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So it was about a year later or a year and a half later. My son was about six months. So I, yeah, some, somewhere between those two. And yeah, so I took my baby and my, my poor husband had like just, he, in the immigration process, got stuck in Canada for a period of time. So he essentially landed in New York and we took off for Africa about a week later. Our life was certainly not boring. But yeah, I went back. I went back to manage a design process for the International Rescue Committee, which was really amazing. It was my first time managing an interdisciplinary design process. It was just a huge awakening for me to just realizing how much I loved the intersection of multiple disciplines coming together and kind of wrangling that process. And it was also, I think, a big awakening for me personally, where when I walked away from my manufacturing business, a lot of it was because on a personal level, I felt like the work we were doing had a lot to do with branding and had a lot to do with product development that really sat within the lines of what, what already kind of exists. It was not innovative in the sense that we were going to start changing the way, you know, power dynamics, the way things work. We were going to kind of like roughly manufacture in Uganda, a, a product that, that we intended to sell. And then we were going to export it to be finished in Europe. And then it was going to be sold in the U.S. and and it was going to be branded as this African product. But but I had spent so many years living there and seeing all these kind of broken systems, manufacturing being one of them. That for me, it just felt like you know I'm going to continue kind of branding and and marketing and working in this sphere of what is. And if I'm going to do the hard work of being an entrepreneur, I, I want to be able to push against the bounds of what is. I want to be able to to disrupt, if you will, what is. So going back, I was actually in grad school and spent the other half of my time that I wasn't that I wasn't doing the design work I was doing researching kind of the whole supply chain I had been working within but this time as an observer and so I had I had interviews throughout the country throughout Kenya and Uganda actually both and started seeing this really interesting kind of perspective emerge where I was there with my husband, who's a biologist and a photographer. And he was seeing what had been my world for almost a decade. And he was kind of seeing it in like this ruinous state, right? Where I had spent years at really beautiful, amazing, fun parties and with a lot of political leadership in the region and had felt very important and like I belonged in a lot of ways and felt very comfortable in that environment. And I was kind of coming back in as an outsider 
And here I was sharing this kind of world with him in a way that felt very, you know, kind of as someone that felt really alone and, and wasn't sure totally where I belonged in it, which is always very uh, vulnerable. But I think, I think that state for me allowed for, for me to listen in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. It was kind of like, here is the, here's the remains of what my life was. Well, welcome. And I have a lot of questions and I was, I was doing a lot of interviews, as I said, and thinking a lot about informal workers and their place within supply chain. And, and my husband was just like obsessed with trees the whole time and, and was just like, kept talking about trees and it, the, the kind of like totally divergent range of our perspectives actually woke me up to seeing my work in a completely different way ultimately ended up in in us kind of having a conversation about starting a consultancy together but but that whole trip was really this kind of awakening to this idea of you know what happens when you walk into a space you don't belong in or another person walks into a space that they don't traditionally belong in that you hold and and how does that misfit actually create something that would otherwise not exist and, and really turn into a, a beautiful, albeit uncomfortable moment for, for me. <laughs> so I, I want to dive into the, the trees that he was focused on and other stuff in a second. I, I think, I think you touched on it a few times, but I wanted to go into it a bit more was the realization walking across Houston street and you, you touched on it, but I was yeah. wondering if you could maybe expand on that a little more and also when you went back, to Africa, what was different post, post the realization across Houston? Walking across Houston, it was a very uncomfortable realization. It meant I was going to have to have some hard conversations. And I think what the realization was, was that I was buying into a belief of what an entrepreneur must look like. And in buying into that belief, I was walking into an investment raise and a future in which someone else was very much in control. And I think often in situations where someone else is in control, it's very easy to blame them for being controlling. And what I was realizing was my own perception of myself my insecurity. I come from like a marketing background, a brand background. I was formerly a journalist. I come from an obsession with, you know, people and product and, and the user and, and had kind of bought into this idea that as someone that wasn't an MBA and wasn't a, a numbers person that I could not lead my company. And, and it, it took me several months, I think, to see this, but I look back now and I realized that I started my startup and then I looked for someone else to give responsibility to, to make sure it worked. And I kind of existed within this system I created of like, I'm, I'm going to build this and I'm going to do a lot of the work, but someone else, please hold the answers, you know, be where the buck stops because I'm not smart enough or or business oriented enough to do that. I've since I think realized that that's, that's something that I think a lot of, of maybe women in particular that come from a creative background. I mean, I can only obviously speak from my own network and experience, but, but struggle with where there's kind of this idea of what, of what should be. 
and you're not completely, you have like a little Venn diagram overlap with that. So you better find someone that, that really gets it and, and let them, let them run with what you're doing. And, and I was in a position where, you know, I had started to feel that I had, I had abdicated some responsibility and felt that I could still hold on to my voice and, and ownership of, of my work in my business and, and increasingly was realizing that I could not. And unless I started over from a, from a space of doing the, the inner work, I, I would say that I realized that I had not done the work I needed to do in order to feel that I could build an entrepreneurial business. I could build something from scratch and own the process and mistakes and questions and different business departments and perspectives that would be part of that. I did not believe that, that I was qualified to do that. And so I don't, I think that my business partner at the time didn't believe that anyway, either. And, and what was incredibly empowering and terrifying in that moment was realizing that I was the only person who could change that. And that in order to change that, I needed to dismantle what I had, had built out of fear and, and that that would not make sense to a lot of people. And, and the following year was very hard, right? Because there was like something I had built that was, I mean, I, I remember one of my advisors saying to me, do you, do you hate money? Like you, you build this whole thing that you're raising that's been evaluated in these ways. And it has so much potential. Do you hate money? And, and other people thinking that I, that I just couldn't get along with my business partner. There, there was so much ego that died for me in that. Right. And, and so many moments that I was like, why couldn't I just do it? But I just, I was so crystal clear in that moment of like, I am going to build something that belongs to someone else and that someone else is in charge of. And the way in which we are interacting at this point is so toxic for me and is so takes away so much from, from who I want to be as a person that I'm going to, I'm going to raise my son kind of in this shadow of um, constantly negotiating for my identity with, with someone that makes me feel small. And that was kind of it for me. That was, that was like, that's not who I want my kid to be. (laughs) So, yeah. So my brain's going in about three different directions now in a good way. You mentioned one word that you mentioned in there. That I just wanted to ask like sort of a clarifying question about was you said, I realized I need to do the work. Mm. And I'm, I'm guessing you weren't, you're not referring to Excel sheets. <laughs> you said, when you said like the moment where you're like, okay, there's, there's some work I need to do. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I had gone to this and I think, I think you might be familiar with them, but I had gone on this retreat for CEOs uh, or founders with a coaching organization called Reboot. And, and I had this incredible weekend with other founders and entrepreneurs. And, and a lot of what Reboot deals with is this Jungian kind of idea of shadow. And that so much of, of who you are and who you have the potential to be gets kind of shoved in this bag of things you don't show the world because showing the world who you really are could, could hurt you, or you have some past experience that has told you not to behave in a certain way. And, and for me, that was a weekend of, of really breaking open this reality that, that was, was, was also talked about, which is that the problems that exist within your organization, most often that you wonder 
you know, why is this occurring? Typically you're coming from you as a leader. And so I kind of walked away with this realization of what it was to, to begin building an organization that was, you know, we had, a, we had a staff at that point of 12 people on the ground in Uganda. We had a working factory. And so I certainly had people underneath me that I was, that I was leading, but it was about to become a multinational team. We were about to do a lot of hiring. There were a lot, about to be a lot of different threads. And I began to see in my interaction with consultants and people who were interviewing and different people that were coming in, a sense that that I was not going to be able to be the leader that I wanted to be because I wasn't I, I wasn't I wasn't living as the leader that I wanted to be. I didn't have ownership of my own work. I had kind of uh, given it up, and for a lot of reasons, I had given it up because I was this young female entrepreneur working in Africa that met someone who was older and seemingly smarter and had a lot more experience. And I kind of co-created this dynamic where I was kind of the busy bee doing a lot of work. And then when it came to big decisions or, or even details, like I ignored a lot of the finances, I ignored a lot of things that, that were, that I, that I should have had kind of a, a pulse of. And, and when my business partner and I went into, you know, kind of the equivalent of marriage counseling and, and there were all these, these, <laughs> these, these things she had to say about me, right. That were like proof that I didn't deserve a co-CEO or a CEO role that were like, she's not detail oriented and she doesn't take responsibility for these things. And she doesn't, I realized I had two choices. Like I could either believe that those were things that I was not capable of, or I could take her feedback and I could go, yeah, you're right. And you know who decided not to do those things? Me. And you know who can change the fact that I don't do those things? Me. And I, I think within that, there was like the whole piece of who I hadn't been as a leader. And because of that, there was also my missing voice where we were about to launch this company that was going to be very product oriented, had a lot uh, to do with scalability. And I was starting to become really obsessed with this idea of sustainable scalability. And like, what does it mean to build something that, you know, is, is built to scale impact and to think within the bounds of sustainability, not just for materials, but for ecosystems and for the people that surround them. And I realized that all those questions I had, all those ideas burning inside me were never going to come out if I wasn't able to kind of take a stand and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to own what this becomes. And for me, that meant, that meant walking away and starting over and, and figuring out, you know, over the next year or so, how to, how to begin discovering that voice in myself and that, that kind of leader that I, that I hadn't been and, and started really engaging in that work with, with a coach and a therapist and, you know, all kinds of really fun stuff that, that to me really became a lot of the crux of what it is to be an entrepreneur, this inner work. It's really funny. We talk a lot about like the business operations or, or what you're kind of building out here. And, and for me, a lot of it has been transformative spiritual exercise of, of who you are as a person that's capable of building something from scratch and, and kind of handling that, that process, which is very uncertain and unwieldy. So you mentioned reboot in there. Uh, yeah. I, I am familiar. We don't, we don't have, there's no paid ads on this podcast, but I will give them a shout out. Um, because actually Jerry Colonna, who's one of the founders, we don't know each other personally as it were, but he was 
kind of partly responsible for me, A, deciding to do a coaching certification and B, choosing the school because I went to the same one that he did many moons ago. And so I'm, I'm familiar with their work and sort of grateful for the work. And actually, as you were talking, one of his sort of, maybe it's a maxim, I'm not sure, but it's a, it's a lovely kind of provocation of how am I complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want, which is one mm -hmm. of his kind of ma mind melting questions that kind of can completely floor you. And it's, uh, it sounds to me like may maybe that, yeah. like you said, when you were going through those conversations and realizing like, oh, actually, maybe I'm kind of creating this narrative and these conditions that I, I say I don't want this, but I end up creating it to myself. So I... Yeah. And I can totally relate as well. Yeah. I think also the thing about the work that you mentioned, you touched on like ownership and agency and taking ownership. And that also led me to this thought of belonging, which we got to a few minutes ago when you went back. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered how, how you, you know, in this sort of period, in this in-between bit, when you were going from the dismantling and realizing you wanted more, kind of agency maybe is maybe is a word we can use and also maybe feeling like do i belong as an entrepreneur mm. how do i belong as an entrepreneur then you and then you mentioned when you went back to africa that there was this other sense of belonging or not belonging can you can you talk about those two words a little bit like the agency and the belonging yeah yeah one one really big thing i think that came out of reboot for me was this idea of belonging as something that is earned that by kind of checking off enough boxes, almost like qualifying for a panel, you know, you get to like sit at the seat of entrepreneurs and, and others building things because you have amassed enough, you know, yes. <laughs> yes, you can puff chest, up. Chest is, chest is puffed out for those yeah. in audio only. And, you know, my coach there kind of presented this idea of like, what if, what if you already belong and you're in the process of discovering who and where those people are and there's already a seat waiting for you at a table and for me systems change and systems entrepreneurship felt like that that seat and discovering that felt like that seat where i i have discovered so many other people i think someone someone recently said it as uh, kind of speaking the same language it's an emerging field and so i think a lot of us that find each other thinking in that way get get really excited i think you know, some of what that process was in returning to East Africa was kind of being this onlooker in a way that I hadn't been before. I, I, you know, a lot of people that I knew had left or had gone in different directions or, you know, were doing different kinds of work or we were no longer in touch, you know, because they were close to my business partner and we had kind of had this, it, it was kind of returning to like a conversation that was never had where I would see people and think, was something said about me? Do you know these things about me? What do you think about me? What do you, you know? And I, I, in, in the space of not having a comfortable position within to kind of fit within and, and know my space, I think I was able to more clearly kind of see the systems that existed and, and kind of begin to identify some interesting things about them, which really became a lot of the basis of, of the work that I'm, that I'm beginning to build now. And I think that, I think that belonging for me to that point had been kind of searching for 
the mechanisms or the ways of acting that kind of got me in the door and, and made me safe, if you will, like someone that, 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 that could blend in and looked like she belonged at the party. You know, I was raised homeschooled. So we're all obsessed with like, seeming like we weren't homeschooled and, and like, we aren't weird, you know, you like most homeschoolers. If you're, if you, if you tell someone that they're homeschooled, they get really upset at you because it's like our dirty secret of like, we never actually went to school and we're not sure that we could have made it past like fifth grade and we don't want anyone to know about it. So I I think for me, it was kind of laying down of this idea of, of like, where is the secret code that everyone has, you know, that I'm looking for where I can just mirror back what, what everyone's doing and, and became like, if I walk into the room with my own ideas as the person I am, what happens? And, and, and I will say also that for me, I had not been back for several years because I had, I had actually a few years before the last time I had been in Africa, I got a call to come home because my dad was passing. I was also struggling with a lot of PTSD, among other things. I was a pretty avid partier at the time. And so I kind of left Africa in this moment of, I, it was kind of this moment of realizing that, that it was okay to admit that I was in need of, of doing some repair in my life. And the last time that I had left Africa, I sat on the floor of my apartment and I texted every single person that I, that I knew that I had somehow harmed or hadn't shown up as the person I wanted to be or had, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of covers it. And, and, then I, and then I got on a plane and left. And so for me, this was kind of the first time coming back and seeing these people in public and being like, just kind of accepting the fact that I, that I had left and, and kind of been trying to build from this place of lack. And here I was returning with my baby and with my husband and coming back to do the work of, of rebuilding as this kind of outsider looking and saying, I'm here and I'm terrified that you might not accept me and I might not still have a place here. And I'm, I'm here to, to ask questions and, and to seek what, where I might belong anyway. And, and that kind of juxtaposition opened up this way of seeing and this path forward that I don't think I, I would have come across if I had continued to feel like I could just continue kind of in the trajectory and social circle I was existing in that got a lot deeper than I expected, but. Um, that, ha- that happens on this podcast sometimes. It's okay. It's on, it's on brand. Um, <laughs> I, I, I kind of relate to that. I wonder if the, the idea of agency slash ownership it sounds like it was different second when you went back because you were the, the sort of agency was in like, I can be an observer and that's cool. And like, it sounded like you went, you went back to a different, a different kind of way of showing up perhaps. And I guess for your husband, like his work as a photographer, I guess the photographer is an observer, right? That's like their, their role in the world, I guess is sort of to, to observe and document. Yeah. I just, I wonder on that note, what, what did he observe that maybe you didn't or didn't before or didn't at the time? What, what did you see that he, he observed on that trip back? Yeah. I mean, I think to start with, we had this kind of different perspective of what the trip was going to be. And I thought it was going to be very productive. I was going to get a lot done. And he was just like, I'm going to see all of the animals do not get in my way. (laughs) 
And that really, as you can imagine, kind of like clashed at the beginning. And I kind of started giving and, and realized like, my God, I have been coming to Africa for like the past six years and haven't been on a safari in, you know, have maybe gone on two safaris. And so, you know, we just kind of engaged with, with East Africa in a way that I, that I hadn't in, in quite some time where I just got to see this beauty and where I got to kind of play. And, and we just spent a lot of time on safari or on the water and just kind of interacting with animals. And within that, you know, I was looking to have conversations directly with like the informal workers I was interviewing and my husband would be off, you know, like talking to, you know, our driver or talking to the chicken guy that was, you know, like <laughs> across the way or, you know, talking to the, the cattle keeper, you know, he was, he was just having all these com- kind of conversations with our, with, with our safari drivers. And, and as he was doing that, that he was building this understanding of the, the ecosystem that was existing. And, and, and he was, you know, as I look at his photos now, he was thinking about, you know, he had just experienced, I don't speak for him, obviously, but he had just experienced being separated from me and my son for six months. And, and when I look at his photos now, I see, and, and I have to be honest, like looking back at his photos now, I see my work differently because it's like, I see, I see it visually where I, in, at that point I was, I was seeing it through words and conversation and I see all of these lines and these barriers and these kind of, you know, there'll be a person coming through a hallway and there'll be like black on, you know, he takes a lot of black and white photos. They're really like black on either side of them where you see kind of this like bifurcation or like, you know, I keep coming back to the word barrier. And, and I, I think that's a lot of what started to come up for me was this realization that I was seeing things in silos, that I was approaching social work with a group of people, you know, my work, my work had been very focused on, on a group of people that were cattle herders. And I, I had often thought of the cattle kind of as a, as a separate thing. And he did not. And he automatically looked at, at the land and at, you know, if you plant trees this way, this happens. And it, it brings about this kind of regeneration. And have you looked at this study over here about what happens with, with land regeneration and tribes? And, you know, so he, he was just approaching it kind of as a, you know, as, as a biologist in a way. And, and in doing that gave me this kind of tension to hold that was like, wow, you're really existing in a world where social work and, and sustainability work are, are two different fields. And what happens when you, when you realize that they're not and, the systems education that I, that I kind of engaged in over the next year really brought me face to face with that reality of, you know, the fact that it, to be honest, is a very white thing. <laughs> you would separate those two things and that most indigenous communities don't. My husband's from the Middle East. He's, you know, he's not, he is becoming a very proud American, but he's, he's not American by birth. And I think, I think for me, it was a realization in that moment of, of, you know, wow, if I approach this work as, as myself and as this singular person with this singular idea of succeeding and finding my space and belonging with this this puffed out chest and this backpack of things that I've done to prove my belonging, I am going to miss so much. And if I invite others into the process and share that tension with them 
and 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 can find the language and the moments to which you know to to open up my lack of knowing and invite them into that process and and the chaos and confusion and and new ideas that might result what does that look like and i i've kind of been chasing that idea ever since and trying to actually intentionally create those moments and it's been a lot more fun but also a lot more generative and and i feel like i'm i'm also in a very different place as an entrepreneur because of that so maybe a line that i sort of associate with you now i don't know maybe i'm being a brand strategist i'm sort of playing (laughs) amateur brand strategist let's say is what happens when you put people in the room who don't belong and i think you actually told me that and i'm just stealing it and pretending it's my own idea which i guess (laughs) like any, any any kind of good management consultant would do that right Get the, yeah. get the client's idea and play it back to them and take it as their own. What happens when you put people in the room who don't belong? And I think that's a really like interesting provocation. And for me, like kind of sums up a lot of the stuff you're doing right now. I'm, I'm curious where else are you seeing that needed? The idea of we need to put people in the room who don't belong. And, and where is it interesting to you at the moment? It started with this idea for me of stakeholders and, you know, in systems work, there's this very interesting place that, that you kind of begin in, in a lot of analysis of, you know, where we're figuring out who the stakeholders are in and of themselves is, is a huge piece of the work. And, and mapping how they fit together and, and who's affected and who's not affected. And, and for a long time in, in brand strategy, I think I kind of developed a formula where it was like, here are the stakeholders. And, and I started wondering how many stakeholders, if you will, I had missed because of the perception that, you know, it would take a, a day or two uh, or a conversation or a meeting or whatever it was to figure out who are the people we need to talk to to get the information we need to brand this the way in which it, it's going to land. And, and I don't mean to minimize brand strategy because that's certainly, you know, a process with rigor and, and come at a certain way. But I started considering myself as a gatekeeper and as someone that had the power to voice who was a stakeholder and thus had the power to decide whose voice belonged in the room. And I became very alarmed by that power and also very aware of it. And, and began, I, I think, to realize that I wanted all of my work to kind of circle around this, this question of who's not in the room that should be, or who are we not listening to? Who do we think doesn't belong in the room that may hold the key to viewing this a completely different way than we are? And, and what does the room, you know, I think there's this kind of accepted process of you create something and you, you take it to potential users or potential stakeholders and you say, what do you, what do you think of this thing? And you get feedback and you recreate it. And my, my, question around that became, you know, what are the moments with the most power and how do we bring people into those moments that don't traditionally belong there? And so coming out of my research process in East Africa, I, I knew that I wanted to begin kind of a startup, but instead of talking to investors or other designers or brand strategists or entrepreneurs, I, I spoke to a bunch of scientists 
and started talking to them about their perspectives of things. And then I went back to the people that I had interviewed and started having long conversations with them and saying, this is what I think I might build. What do you think? Is it a good idea to build this? And I brought them in as, as partners from the beginning and started to co-build with them and, and to really open up like, you know, if we're going to talk about equity in this process, like, here's what I know that I think you don't know. And what happens when you know that? And, and that kind of became the whole basis for, for a lot of the work that I'm, that I'm doing now, which is seeking to kind of democratize marketing and access to market, market and equity and, and uh, a lot of those concepts that I think have not belonged to informal workers, particularly in, in informal manufacturing in developing markets. But in a broader realm in my consulting work, I just started seeing all of these opportunities to bring people into the room that wouldn't normally be there, where you end up with a totally different perspective. And, and a lot of it started with my husband, where I would think it, you know, we, we recently um, were pitching for a project right now where I, I came in and thought it was a, it was a brand identity project. And he came in and it became, it became a, it became a clean water project with a revenue stream around like tourism and clean water. And, and then, you know, we kind of had to engage in like, how did those two things intersect and what does that look like? And, and I think that unwieldy moment of like, Oh my God, there's not a formula for this is something that every time makes me think it's, it's wrong. We've gone in a wrong direction and, and I'm beginning to embrace that feeling of like, you know, tools were made for real humans to use them and, and not to, to silo us into only doing certain processes if, if we are the ones with ownership of the tools. So kind of beginning to, to engage in processes of inquiry and building and where does brand fit in and where does water fit in and where do these other things fit in and, and to start to think about, you know, a scientist and a brand strategist and a business finance person and a, and a designer walk into a room, what happens? And I think that intentionally choosing people that would not normally be in that room, to me, started out as a no-brainer because it was like, of course, we're going to get to better products. We're going to get to more competitive ideas. And, and then as I started doing it, I realized why we're not doing it. And it's because it's very hard and there's a lot of tension and, and, and people, argue, people argue when you do that. And if you can, if you can properly hold it, it gets to a new different place, but, but that process in and of itself of creating the container is, is quite unwieldy. So there's a lot I love in there. So <laughs> a couple of quick thoughts is I think the idea of, oh yeah, what happens if a business person, a designer, a chicken farmer and a, and a scientist walk into <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not a, not a cheap gag, like three people walk into a bar, but I yeah. think a lot of agencies slash consultancies have, have done a lot there, but it's always been quite, surface level because it's like oh let's bring some people together to like co-create and i think it feels nice and at a surface level it feels exciting and cool and everything else but i i I sense that these things don't tend to go particularly far or particularly deep for the reason you mentioned which is there are inevitably it gets unwieldy and that that tension is like oh i don't know if we want to we want to go any further here this feels hard suddenly And, and i think the the phrase unwieldy moments is, is a very good one. And so I can, I totally hear that. And it sounds like the unwieldy thing is something that you're, you've had to, or are having to kind of get to grips with as you're bringing this broader mix of people along. 
Yeah, I think it takes a lot of, you know, a lot of humility and a lot of trial and error. You know, like in my business, I brought together a PhD that's looking to help with the research side of what I'm doing, a finance person and, and a designer on the ground in Uganda all together in a meeting. And I thought we would have a really productive meeting. And, and it wasn't, you know, what the PhD had to say was not relevant to everyone else's work. The feedback she gave wasn't relevant. I hadn't properly prepped her for it to be relevant. And it, it wasn't really anyone else's fault. It was just a realization of it takes a lot of energy and a lot of trial and error and a lot of being able to hold space and a lot of kind of putting your ego aside for a moment to sit in a room and, and say that person is responding to work because they're not understanding what it's actually intended to do because they're not sharing a framework. And I think often we bring people into a room, share a framework at least, and a process. And it's kind of like, I'm going to do this work and hand it off, or I'm going to do this work and get your feedback. And when you start to get into, you know, like someone that believes that work should disrupt how we're coming at sustainability, someone that believes it must cover off on, you know, scalability financially, someone that believes that it all must ladder up to a certain kind of sustainable impact. You have to know how to kind of begin to maneuver that Venn diagram and, and unpack what from each of those actually belongs in the puzzle. And that work is, is I think, uh, is very, it gets very personal and it gets very, you know, again, kind of unwieldy, particularly when you invite in people from different social dynamics or different levels of, of power. And, and you seek to kind of begin to maneuver that. I, I think that that's typically the moment where we pause or we say no is when, when we're kind of beginning to push back on the the systems that be, and, and one, one such moment that I've really found is, is in, in my entrepreneurial work, I've begun to position the informal worker as my end client and as the person that I am building for, and that I intend to buy the services that I'm creating. And my whole scalability model is built around this belief that I need to build a product that is is, is good enough, essentially, that, that someone who does not necessarily have a ton of money is certainly doesn't have a lot of money is, is going to spend money every month on and going to see it as that that worthwhile to them. And I find that I have really positive, productive conversations with people around equity and power and all kinds of things until I bring up that idea. And, and inevitably, like the conversation halts and people don't get it and they kind of look at me funny and, and at first the consultant that came in to do my financials with me and kind of helped me build out modeling and operations kept saying to me, you cannot expect people who make like a dollar a day to invest in, in this kind of product. Like you're going to have to have an, an end buyer that supplements like their, their payments and, and have it be a two-sided marketplace. And you know, there are all these kind of conversations that happened where she and I kept pushing against each other. And at one point to me, she said to me that she thought I was allergic to some of her ideas. And, and in doing that, I think that we came to a place where, where we, we got to something really different 
and differentiated. And I, she caught me a couple of weeks ago where I was like drifting, drifting towards something that I had, had been like starchly against before, staunchly against before. And she said, are you going that direction? Because everybody keeps telling you, you need to, because I know I told you that you needed to, and you've convinced me. And here's the way I see your idea now and how I think it needs to shift to work. And I just, I don't know that we would have gotten there as like two people that were both, you know, like social empowerment, you know, focused people who had spent all this time in developing markets together. So I, I, I'm still clearly, you know, getting my arms around it, but I think it's a lot of like, you know, you've got to have some tension. You've got to have some people that, that strongly disagree. You've got to have some people that, that will pull something in two different directions. And that is something that has to be very intentional and has a lot to do with who you put in the room and requires a lot more thought than, oh, these four people are from different disciplines and all are going to bring different perspectives to this one product, but they're all in the same kind of field and social circle and realm. And, and it's not, it's not just interdisciplinary. It's also it's also this idea of like, this person doesn't normally belong in this room and we wouldn't ever normally take their ideas into account and taking their ideas into account is going to feel weird. And like, it doesn't work at the beginning. And how do we engage with that as part of our process is something that, that is kind of my, my big question right now. So a, a phrase that you've used with me before, this is hundred percent your phrase. I'm not going to try and steal this one and pass it off as my own okay. is audacious hope. And I wonder, can, can you talk about the audacious hope of building a thing versus having a client? And you, know, you kind of touched on both, right? You've got some client projects you're doing. You've also got entrepreneurial ventures. Can, can you talk about that audacious hope of trying to build a thing? You know, some of it comes back to that idea of, of belonging. And, and some of it, for me and probably for a lot of people it goes back to to you know how i grew up and i grew up in a very male dominated religious environment and being a girl with a lot of ideas you know i think we talk a lot societally about women and and about the need for equity but i think it's much harder to dismantle the narratives inside of you that say that it is not worth it to engage in the effort it takes to put your ideas into the world. And I, I think that particularly after, you know, my dad was, was 52, was 50 when he was diagnosed with cancer and, and died at 52. And I started counting down years. And when my son was born, I started thinking about, you know, if I die at the same age of my, as my dad, how old is my son going to be? And I, I started asking myself, like, what is it going to take for you to quit counting years? What is it going to take for you to, you know, I, I would lay in bed at night after my dad died and I would think, what is the point? Like I could condense all of life into nothingness with so little effort. And for me, the act of walking away from a business I didn't believe in and the act of seeking to build something from things that I did was this act of kind of unwieldy, audacious hope that it was worth it to get up day after day and, and seek to build something that I believed, you know, 
ideally was going to like result in fame and fortune and, and all of these wonderful things we hope for as, as entrepreneurs. And at the same time, I, I find that what the, the, the greater value to me is again and again, coming back to it being worth it to build something that, that works me out and works out my thoughts and, and goes head on with my beliefs or lack thereof, or idea that I just kind of want to not try anymore, or I just want to fit into someone else's idea, or wouldn't it be easier if, and, and um, I think I told someone recently, you know, for me, coming out of losing a parent, coming out of PTSD, coming out of shutting down a business, coming out of feeling like I failed in a lot of ways, for me, the, the exercise of engaging in entrepreneurship again is like, it's like discovering running or like a whole body workout for the first time, where it's just like, oh, wow. Like I, like I, I woke up, you know, and, and I think challenges me in every way in how I engage socially and how I engage as a leader in my beliefs about money or my own skills or my deserving or doubts. And I I think, I think for me is, is just a way of, of being the most human that I can possibly be. And, and to me, that is, that is, that's that's hope that it's worth being the most human that we can be right kind of on that note you did touch on it what makes you hopeful so speaking about audacious hope what what makes you hopeful as you know we're recording this kind of march 2021 and yeah. both in new york so the sun is out where i am that's one thing that's making me hopeful but what what, what else is making you hopeful as we've, we're sort of entering what perhaps is a, a new chapter yeah there's a few things i mean on a personal level, I know that I know that people have all different views on the current administration. But for me, having a husband who's in the pro- having a partner who's in the middle of, of an immigration process, you know, the the changing of the administration means that our our visa process got cut in half. You know, which is a huge. You know, it's one thing to like read about these things in the news, and it's another thing to to experience it on such a personal level that someone you love is able to keep living with you or, or find work or, you know, just sign up for the gas bill on their own. So that's, that's been a really big moment for us. The sun, the sun being out has been a big one. The playground down the street opened this week. And I mentioned we move up to the Hudson Valley and in September, and we have never been to the playground on the street because it's been closed this whole time. And, and watching my son kind of run around and trying to tell him not to throw rocks at other children or himself has just been like, wow, like I am in the chaos of being in a space with people I don't know with our children running around again and, and having conversations with other parents standing at the edge of the swing set is just like, oh, hi humans, we're all here. Like, so that's, that's been a big one. And then I've been really, I love that Oliver poem about not walking I think on uh, it's like a hundred or a thousand miles on your knees, but but instead finding your place in the belonging of things. And she talks about the the wild geese calling to all of us about our place and things. And I have been thinking of it often this week as all the geese are coming back, and you can see them flying every day, multiple sets of them overhead. And and my son is is pretty magical, and stood up looking at the birds the other day and grabbed my face and said, "Mommy, help me fly." That was a little moment for me. 
Normally you help me fly. I love that. So we, we touched on that the sun is out, but for a lot of the last four months in our part of the world, it's been freezing. I, I wanted to, sorry, I couldn't resist the bad transition, but I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk about freezing. Yeah. And yeah. we've both talking, we've both talked about in our yeah. previous conversations together about freezing mm-hmm. when something is about, about to happen, whether mm-hmm. it's an unwieldy moment or not, sometimes we can, we yeah. can freeze in the face of something. Can you, can you talk a bit about that when, yeah. whether it's as a consultant, as a founder, mm-hmm. what do you do when you feel that kind of freeze starting to happen? maybe explain what what the free you know freezing means to you as well yeah yeah I think there's like this weird moment that comes every so often as an adult where you're an age that that feels like societally judged in terms of where you are supposed to be an age of transition right and and for me it's like I have been a consultant. I, and for a while I could keep, be a consultant and keep pace with my friends that were in particular roles and I could do my own thing and I could kind of dip into both worlds. And it was like, if this doesn't work out, I'll go, I'll go do this over here. And, um, and we're at a point where like my friends are starting that have like strictly gone the marketing route, you know, we're like starting to level up and, and I'm at this moment where it feels like there's less, there's less clarity about what the trajectory is as, as a, as an entrepreneur. And that seems obvious, but I I think sometimes I find it surprising how little of a trajectory there is. There is this idea of like making it in a way that is quantified in, in such incredible, like, you know, making it is like, making it is different for an entrepreneur than other fields. It's, it's almost like being an actor. It's like, oh, that's nice. You're an actor. You're still bartending. You're not an actor. You know, either you're like really in movies or you're not, you know, really in a Netflix show or you're not like what's making it. And, and there is this whole like breadth of living in between that I, I think is so easy to write off as not counting. And what I have begun to discover is, is digging into that living is it's so much richer and almost also so much more terrifying than I thought. It's super easy to talk about a fundraising process. It is terrifying to actually be in one. And so I, I raised a little bit of money over the holiday to, you know, last year to basically go from, from kind of a theory of change and a concept I had to like being able to pitch for angel investing, which, which is kind of a gap that a lot of, of, you know, it doesn't get talked about very often. That's kind of like, Oh yeah, you raise you raise your first hundred thousand or two hundred fifty thousand or whatever it is, and and there's kind of this assumption that that's where you started, and and then you start like digging into medium blogs and and like going down a, a Google rabbit hole, and you realize there is this whole like eight to twelve months, you know, six to twelve months of like laborious work and self doubt and and like just a slog to get through to that first point. And for me, I think there was this elation of like. Hey, I got some funding. And then there was like, what, what if I don't do it right? What if I, what if I'm not smart enough? What, what if this is the point? And and I think this is where I talk about entrepreneurship, really starting to like be this spiritual exercise that really works you out is it's like someone gave you something, someone believed in you in a certain way, someone backed you. And in a way it kind of calls your bullshit where you're like, wait, I don't believe in myself that much. 
what are you doing showing up for me? And, and you begin to have to grapple with your own self-perception in a way that you don't have to on just kind of a day-to-day basis of being comfortable. And I started really judging myself for that point of freezing where it's like, I, you know, I, if I, if I freeze over, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, how in the world am I ever going to be able to like move forward, uh, you know, constructively with a real raise, you know, if you will. And, and I, I had a, I had a great moment with, with, with a coach that I've, that I've worked with since I first went to reboot that was kind of just like, what if the freeze is part of your process? Like, what if you don't judge it so hard? What if it's like, I'm going to freeze. And in that moment, I am taking it all in and I'm adjusting and like this big moment just happened. And now I'm going to breathe and see what comes. And I'm not going to just like plow ahead at full speed. And I think, you know, when I, when I met my husband, he talked a lot about photographing the moments between moments. And I, I think that's become a big theme for me is, is those moments of freezing or where we don't know what to say, or the idea isn't cohesive yet, or the awkward fumbling through the first three or four times you present a deck and say, I'm sorry, I thought I knew what this was and I don't. And the person on the other end says, keep going. I'm with you, you know, are, are actually so deeply important to engage with. And um, so I, I've been kind of trying to, t- trying to embrace, embrace the freeze, if you will. <laughs> and maybe add a little bit to that, which is like maybe, it, and I can totally relate to the freeze, is if it's more of a pause than a freeze, because freeze is when we are rigid and solid and can't, can't move and can't do anything. Whereas like your coach said, it's a brief, if yep. you can turn it into a place where you take a breath, yep. but you're still, yeah. you're still alive as it were, you're still flowing to some degree. I think, I think there's a difference yeah. between the two. And I think it's really easy to get into that terror frozen moment of, Oh, someone is wanting to give me this or pay me that or share my ideas with them or whatever it is. And that can be really terrifying. Yeah. And I think the freeze gets to it, you know, in, in, sharing it as a pause, you know, I think it does get to a lot of the depth of what for me really does happen in that moment, which is a lot of conversations with, as we talked about earlier, people that don't belong or, or wouldn't normally be in the conversation. It's, it's kind of a, a, a gap moment of, you know, I, I found myself, you know, I, I had pitched the idea of like a decentralized lab, labor union. And I found myself after I, I got a little bit of money to carry it forward. And, and this goes back to my my trip with my, with my husband to East Africa, I found myself reading all about the language of trees and particularly about beech trees and how they, they grow in cohesion. And, and I had a lot of people around me talking about, you know, I believed that you could bring like a system of workers together around a resource instead of just specific roles. And, and I had a lot of voices saying like, you know, you can't do that. They, you know, they're going to pull in one direction or the other. It needs to be about one person's benefit. It's going to, it's going to, no one is going to want to benefit another person at a loss to themselves. They're never going to think that long-term. And that was kind of the, the setup was like, no, there's natural tensions here that you can't solve for. And in reading about trees, I just felt like there was kind of this whole different idea of like, you know, how things work that I kind of just engaged in and suspended 
my perspective on, on what I was seeing to just uh, kind of wonder about how beech trees do it and, and what I might learn from that. So I guess in some ways the, the pause for me is, is a spaciousness and a, and a moment to, to get curious in, in a lot of ways. I wanted to touch on kind of what you said just then about people in your world, as it were, gave you some, you know, feedback or advice. Uh, that's not going to work. <laughs> Maybe not that specifically, but more broadly, what is bad advice that you hear in your area of work that's actually widely accepted? So what is the, the advice or the dogma that you, you hear, whether it's in the kind of brand strategy world or systems thinking or whatever kind of space that comes to mind, what's, what's some bad advice that you think seems to be really widely accepted and maybe shouldn't? I think for me, a lot of the bad advice sits in culture. So I'll, I'll pick social entrepreneurship. I think it sits in a lot of cultural bias that hasn't yet been called out or surfaced. So I, I've spent a lot of my career working with with people that that you know probably fall into an income stratosphere of of maybe making you know fifteen thousand a year or less. A lot of them being, and now my my pretty much entire focus being on on informal workers. And I think a lot of the advice that I have received that has felt really limiting. And, and like it may actually be bias is around what those people are capable of or want, particularly around work as meaningful. Things we're like actively digging into in the West and you enjoy your work, wanting to take energy from your work, identity in your work, and kind of this general idea of, oh, those people just want more money. However you're going to do it. Don't ask them questions about a bunch of other stuff. And kind of this, this hierarchy of needs almost that's been established around like, they're not going to care about the other things till you cover the base. And I have found it very helpful to really hold that advice and that perspective as almost a stakeholder in and of itself in the system and understand if this is what people are saying to me, this is also what people are saying to the user that I'm serving and how do I step outside of that line of question and, and what, what questions can I ask that have not been asked yet? in order to get beyond that perspective. And, and for my thesis, I had this really amazing advisor who, who had, was also a psychiatrist and had done a lot of amazing work with children and a lot of work around play, did a lot of work with like Sesame Street and Lego and you know talked to me a lot about setting the, and you can see how this would work very well with children, setting up the person you're questioning is an expert. So asking a question about them and then asking a question about how they view everyone else. And this process of, providing dignity and not leading the witness and yet seeking to dig a little deeper. And, and I think anytime I hear someone say, oh, that person won't want X, they're this type of person. I know that there's probably a space there to dig into that's being ignored. Not always, but particularly in my line of work, it's usually a rich area of inquiry. And I think for me that looking for meaning beyond just, just a paycheck and the, the limitation, the idea of of capability that I think sits there. You know, what you're really saying is you need to give that person an income. They're not, they're not at a point in their lives where they're ready to also have meaningful work or they're not ready to represent themselves. Or there's, there's kind of always this perception, not only of just informal workers as only wanting income and not really caring about where it comes from, but also around 
needing representation and being unable to kind of take their own seat at the table, if you will. And I think our whole conversation has been about that, right? It's been about belonging, about the idea that, that there is gonna be a seat for me and I can sit here. And so when I hear those things, I hear a lot of, of my own track that I have played for myself, you know, oh, I don't have a financial background. I can't be an entrepreneur. Oh, I don't have this. I can't do that. And I, I find that in, in clearing away those stories, I start to have conversations that, that get us to a very different place. One of those conversations was recently with, with someone that lost his job during COVID and, and was, it was an artisan worker and expressed to our researcher that was interviewing him, not that he had lost all his money, but that he had to go back to the village and sell meat on the side of the road. And that that wasn't who he was and how empty he felt. And that feels like something that would be accepted as so obvious for someone that was a New Yorker or an American Mm -hmm. or a Westerner, someone that deserves to have or or naturally has identity in their Mm -hmm. work. And I think for me was just a really meaningful moment of research and of inquiry where it was like, okay, that's that's a bias that's been sitting here that has sat as a cloud over this field for a really long time. And what do we see when we begin pulling that away? So that's, that's kind of, I've been kind of looking for bias hot zones <laughs> to, to kind of question and almost as, as spaces to, to drill into and begin to discover what, what has been missed because we didn't believe under, anything sat underneath them. What have we not talked about yet that we should have? What have I not asked? What else is in your mind? We've covered quite a bit of ground, but I'm curious yeah. where we haven't been yet. I think with that idea of deserving and that idea of belonging, for me comes a question about what happens when we stop gatekeeping in any field and we encourage people that don't belong to enter, not just from a, you know, we've obviously been talking a lot about diversity and equity in our culture right now, but, you know, in having a lot of conversations with scientists, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about the need for, you know, qualitative research for people to come in and and discover the gap between here's what we know about science and sustainability. And here's what we know about behavior and how to bridge the two. And I think for me, a lot of where I've been, been sitting is what happens when we democratize tool sets. And when we start to question the structures that we've built and, and not that they aren't valuable and not that we don't need them, but where do they stop functioning as guideposts and as productive units of society? And where do they start becoming walls that decide who is and who isn't and who says and who doesn't get to say? And where do we become lazy about the rigor with which we should be exploring who gets to come inside those walls and how to make them more fluid and how to make them productive instead of restrictive. And, and a lot of what I've heard in, in asking that question is just that the market is not ready for that. And, and I think it is. I, I think that people are, are ready to ask a lot of questions. I think a lot of us are, are really tired of the silos that we've existed within of the way in which we've been doing things. And we've had disruption put upon us and 
I think that, you know, in a lot of the, the systems work I've been doing, you know, you see that disruption is, is one part of a larger cycle that happens in nature and happens in society. It typically comes after a really big growth phase. And after disruption comes cohesion and belonging and gathering. And I think that we're all craving that. And I think that sometimes that's an unwieldy, funny, disruptive process in and of itself. And, uh, and that's kind of my, my, uh, you know, my other kind of audacious hope and, and question and, and my search now is, is what happens as we societally or as individual people or groups of people begin to move away from, from the love of disruption that we've engaged in and the, and the worship of disruption. And we begin to look for places that we can come together and create together and, and embrace the messiness that ensues and see what we can create of it. And, and I'm, I'm excited about that. Hey, it's Howard again. Thanks for listening. Just wanted to let you know that you can access every episode of Under the Current, along with full show notes, links, and other resources at underthecurrentpodcast.com and also on our YouTube channel. Under the Current is produced by Wavetable. Learn more at wavetable.net. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.